So again, we're talking about journey, journey this month. Journey is our theme. And today we're lifting up a journey that, in theory, all of us have been on for our whole lives. A journey that precedes us and hopefully will succeed us after we are gone. That's the communal journey of democracy. But first, who here has heard of the seven principles before? The seven principles of Unitarian Universalism. Okay, for those of you who have not, I'm sorry, that's completely my fault. In brief, the seven principles are collectively a statement of our association, a covenant to which all Unitarian Universalist member congregations uh, ascribe. And one of these principles, the fifth of the seven principles reads, we the member congregations of the Unitarian Universalist Association covenant to affirm and promote the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. The use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. Now this might not sound like a particularly radical statement, but remember that most religions are not democratic. Most involve a hierarchy of any number of different governing systems, including conclaves, popes, bishops, clerics, and so on. So undemocratic has European history been that heads of state were often the highest religious authorities as well. A disastrous proposition if we've learned anything from that history. But not so with early Unitarians at least on these shores, having all but been run out of Europe by governments and more powerful religions, free thinkers and religious radicals found fertile ground in the American colonies to explore their understanding of faith, religious authority, and indeed government itself. Now, the first experiment in New England admittedly didn't go very well a strict fundamentalist theocracy that culminated in the witch trials of the 1690s. But within a few generations after the tragic failure of the Puritan rule, enlightenment thinking, individual conscience, and both Unitarianism and Universalism began to blossom in the new world of America. And with them, so did democracy. It was the Congregationalist and Unitarian movement that gave rise to the understanding of direct democracy on these shores, affirming that each municipality, called parishes, each parish, had the right to elect the minister of their choosing and affirm the type of religion they wanted to practice, as long as it was Christian, of course. <laughs> But it was here that true dem democracy began in America, not in electing mayors or governors. No, really, until the revolution, these high positions were primarily appointed by the English crown. But democracy developed in electing ministers and choosing beliefs. Now, by the last quarter of the 18th century, Conflict between the increasingly free-thinking and increasingly democratic American colonies 
and the British Empire was at a boiling point. As colonists, all the English subjects living in America had no direct representation in the English government. And more and more Americans resented this fact, especially when it came to the taxes that the English were levying on imports. Now, it's not coincidence that the vast majority of the so-called founding fathers would be either Congregationalist, Unitarian, Universalist, or Deist, the groups most favorable to the democratic ideal and most closely related to our modern Unitarian Universalist faith. Now, when our American government was formed in opposition to that British rule, eventually we decided on a constitution to determine the scope of our democracy. And of course, the first line of the United States Constitution starts, say it with me, we the people. Now, of course, in 1789, we the people only meant we the white property-owning male people. But as we'll see, we Unitarian Universalists were at the forefront of every expansion of this definition since, save for one. Now, in Wisconsin itself, we have a very interesting history with democracy. The Scandinavian immigrants, who were the first white settlers of Wisconsin um, in the middle of the 19th century, were vehemently anti-slavery and held on to a more community-focused mindset than some of the more established communities on the eastern seaboard. And it was, in fact, a small group of these abolitionist Wisconsinites who built from the remnants of several failed political parties a new party dedicated to the benefit of all citizens and which vehemently opposed the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 and slavery itself. Meeting in Ripon, Wisconsin, at the site of the newly founded Ripon College, a mere handful of former Whigs, Democrats, and free slavers created, again, the Republican Party. This was a party that originally was for the people and against any power or policy, including slavery, that hindered the rights or opportunities of any individual American. Now, those first years of the Republican Party were indeed revolutionary. One of the founders, Alvin Bovey, reached out to renowned newspaper journalist and friend and Unitarian, Horace Greeley, who embraced the new party, promoted its ideals through his media empire. It was partially Greeley's writings, combined with Unitarian minister Theodore Parker's published sermons, that inspired Abraham Lincoln to join the Republican Party in the first place. Now, Parker famously described our democracy as a government, quote, of all the people, by all the people, and for all the people, which later appeared almost verbatim in the most famous speech of the 19th century, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Now, immediately after emancipation, Unitarians and Universalists began working towards expanding democracy to another as yet ignored population, women. 
Now, the suffragist movement was literally driven by Unitarian women and men across the next generations. Names like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Julia Ward Howe, Susan B. Anthony, Jenkins Lloyd-Jones, our own Florence Buck and Marion Murdoch, all led the way for the next great expansion of the understanding of we the people, adding an additional 8 million votes to the total in the 1920 elections. Now we've spoken recently of the commitment, sacrifice, and impact that the Unitarian Universalist faith and its members has had on the civil rights movement. Indeed, tomorrow, March 11th, is the 54th anniversary of the martyrdom of Reverend James Reed during the marches at Selma, whose sacrifice would soon be followed by fellow Unitarian Universalist lay leader from Detroit, Viola Liuzzo. And today, mere weeks after the United Methodist Church voted to condemn homosexuality and throw the welcoming Methodists in our community into conflict, I am proud to say that we were the first faith group in the country to affirm openly gay clergy and perform gay wedding and commitment ceremonies and our members were on the right side of history when it came to marriage equality in the United States. Now, as we heard from Denise earlier, admittedly, we do still have some work to do to become more knowledgeable and supportive of the trans and non-gender binary community. But our willingness to engage in the work at all puts us in a very select group of religious institutions even considering the issue. So again, I'm very appreciative of Denise and the work we will continue to do around this important ministry. And I again invite anyone to, who's interested to join us on April 14th after service for a, for a discussion. But indeed, we've, we've been consistent advocates. We Unitarian Universalists have been consistent advocates for the expansion of the concept, we the people extending the democratic principle to more and more of the folks who make up our society. And this has always been a good thing. Democracy itself is based on the understanding that those who are affected by government actions must first be involved in the process of decision-making that determines those actions. If one is to vote in one's own best interest, Overall, our society should move forward to accommodate more and more needs, provide more and more rights and liberties, and not less. But there is, of course, another force at work in our society, not simply the representative democracy we adhere to for civic purposes, Arguably the most powerful force in our world today is our economy and indeed our whole economic system. And this is, of course, capitalism. At its base, like many economic theories, capitalism, which places immense value on work, production, and the development of wealth, is compatible with democracy because it privileges industriousness and innovation and promotes the power of the individual to determine one's own economic fate. But in practice, capitalism has a number of flaws, 
and a number of tendencies that by definition run counter to the democratic ideal. So in contrast to the Horatio Alger myth of young destitute boy makes good in the world through hard work, loyalty, and ambition, even the author Alger himself, a Unitarian himself, by the way, knew that, quote, providence must also play a role in lifting one up from poverty. 19th century French historian and political scientist Alexis de Tocqueville once called a democracy we practice in this country the great American experiment and speaks of it as a journey that humanity follows towards ever better, more just government. But he himself is often confounded by the capitalism's role in the society he observes. Tocqueville once wrote that within American society, those with the most education and intelligence, read privilege, were left with only two choices. They could join limited circles in academia to explore the weighty and complex problems facing society, or they could use their superior talents and privilege to amass vast fortunes in the private sector. Now, though he was not a monarchist himself, Tocqueville was the descendant of aristocracy and, and also lamented the loss of the patron or donor class of Europe that didn't exist in America because in his mind it removed the responsibility of the wealthy to support other areas of society. Now as industrialization took hold of the world, we indeed saw those with power begin to amass huge fortunes at the expense of everyone else. Rockefeller's Standard Oil Empire, Carnegie's U.S. Steel, the, mo the monopoly of the railroads, all of these hearkened to a time when both industry and capitalism ran unchecked by democratic institutions. After the market crash of 1929 and the New Deal put into place by the Roosevelt administration, for the first time we began to address the problems of wealth inequality in a top-heavy economic system which concentrated wealth in the hands of the few at the expense of the many. Corporate and individual income taxes became standard. Minimum wages were set, child labor laws passed, and a huge amount of government money was freed up to provide work for our people, improving and beautifying our country through the Works Progress Administration, and any other programs, many other programs. The ramped up industrial production here and around the country, coupled with the destruction of the economic engines of Europe around World War II, was the final push, of course, to get us out of the Depression. And for a time, capitalism was held in check by democracy. In fact, the two decades following the Second World War saw both great prosperity as well as greater equality amongst the classes than ever before or since in American history. Bolstered by the GI Bill that sent tens of thousands of soldiers to school who would not have otherwise had the opportunity, financed thousands of home purchases and provided medical security for our veterans, our post-war economy became the envy of the world. 
Minimum wage was still commensurate with what it had been during the Depression, adjusted for inflation. The stock market was heavily regulated, and the ultra-rich were providing more tax income than they have before or since. But as de Tocqueville warned us in the 1820s, the ambition of the elite would find other ways to amass wealth and begin to directly influence the democratic system itself. Nonprofit foundations started popping up. Sounds like a good thing, right? But some of these became ways that the wealthy could avoid paying the penalties of the inheritance tax. And then eventually they figured out these nonprofit foundations could be a way to support only conservative ideas. One of the most influential is one from right here in Wisconsin, the Bradley Foundation. Who's heard of the Bradley Foundation? The Bradley Foundation began by contributions to McCarthy-era think tanks in the 50s, and it's been a huge supporter of all things conservative since, including Americans for Prosperity and AMIC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which has been responsible for the sweeping anti-democratic cause all across this country, like voter ID laws, the anti-immigration legislation, SB 1070 in Arizona, the concealed carry laws that have proliferated handguns all across this nation, and Wisconsin's own Act 10, which stripped collective bargaining rights from our state employees in 2011. Now, throughout our history, democracy has had an ally, if not in the presidency, which tends to be an office held almost exclusively by America's wealthiest men, or the legislature, who are beholden to campaign contributions and the wills of their specific constituents. No, the ally we have often found as democratic proponents is in the courts. Over the course of the first 200 years of our nation's history, our highest courts help push forward our understanding of we, the people, extending rights and personal liberties over time for the vast majority of our history, courts sided with citizens and against those outside influences that might compromise or invalidate the democratic system. But in more recent cases, in a series of five to four split decisions, the Supreme Court has held unconstitutional most, if not all, government efforts to regulate political expenditures and contributions from any source. Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission of 2010 and McCutcheon versus the Federal Election Commission of 2014 both invalidated virtually all government efforts to limit the impact of money in the political process, resulting in the fact that corporations, wealthy individuals, and those shadowy nonprofit foundations now have a greater influence on American politics than ever before. This was a turning point in our democratic journey, one whose collision course with capitalism had been narrowly averted for nearly 250 years. In these two decisions, the Supreme Court was essentially affirming that corporations had the right to free speech 
which until that point had only been considered an individual right and had been subject to numerous exceptions, like disallowing someone from yelling fire in a crowded theater, or the numerous anti-slander laws that are currently on the books. No, the court ruled, again, five to four, that not only do corporations have a right to free speech, but that money itself is akin to speech. Or rather, that limiting the amount of money an entity can contribute towards advertising in political elections was an undue limit on their right to free speech. Well, this is where another of our Unitarian Universalist principles comes in, the very first one, which reads, we, the member congregations of the UUA, covenant to affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person. The inherent worth and dignity of every person. Person is the key word, singular. This primary belief is the one that drives the rest of our principles, including the one we started with this morning, the use of the democratic process. We value the individual, but reserve the right to condemn the actions of the collective, especially when it's detrimental to the rest of us. And as simplistic as it sounds, the answer to all these problems indeed lies with the individual person. Each and every one of us has our part to play in solving the problem of our democracy that is threatened by the unchecked spending of the select few, and of all the individuals out there, we are as invested and responsible as any. As both democracy and the right of individual conscience are our Unitarian Universalist birthright. We may not have invented democracy, but without us and our influence, it might look quite different than it has for much of our history. In fact, it might look a lot like what it looks like today, with collective liberty more important than the voice of the individual and money equaling speech. Now, I say it's time for revolution. Time to take our democracy back and begin the conversations not with corporate interests, foreign lobbies, or the American Legislative Exchange Council, but with people. Individuals communicating one-on-one. -on -one. To paraphrase the great Reverend Thomas Starr King, we need not talk about politics, but we can't help but talk about humanity. But it will take all of us, young and old and in between, gay and straight and trans and cis, all of us, listening to each other's stories and love, each of us respecting the divinity and the other, it is indeed a democratic journey we're on, and the foundation of the path is beset on every side from powers who don't believe in the process or the individual person that we hold so sacred. These attacks are on the very bases of our faith itself. It's time for us to take it back. So get involved. Call your Congress people and tell them what you think. Talk to your friends, to your family, even and especially when it's difficult. 
go and vote. Our next primary is April 2nd, by the way. Make sure you vote or request an absentee ballot now. For us, as Unitarian Universalists, it's not just a civic duty. It's a sacred calling. Go get involved. Make our democracy great again. May it be so. Blessed be. And amen.